Welcome to Red Flag Radio. My name is Ros Ward. I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are recording this podcast on Aboriginal land that always was and always will be the land of the Indigenous peoples of this continent. We're um, giving you some highlights from the Marxism conferences in the last couple of episodes, and this one is... um, Actually, I don't have the date written down here. I think it's from 2018, actually. Sorry. Uh, and it's a session that was run um, by a local speaker, Omar Hassan, who has been a guest on the podcast before. And it's in a what we call a stream or a kind of theme of the conference, the Marxism 101 sessions. And for people who haven't been to Marxism before, I think it's really worth you knowing that we run a series of uh, sessions throughout the conference that will be happening in 2021 as well. If you look at the program at marxismconference.org, you'll find the Marxism 101 stream. It's really the kind of central topics to understanding both the theory and the practice of Marxism and revolutionary socialism. So even if you're kind of fairly familiar with Marxism or you've read some Marx or Engels or both and um, you just want to hear about some of the ways that we position those uh, or ways we answer some of the big questions about, you know, what socialism is, why the working class is important, um, why revolution is important, then all of those kind of topics are covered in the Marxism 101 stream. I think probably, Liam, you've presented some of those over the years. Yeah, I've done a couple, yeah. And I think some of the discussions that come out in those sessions as well, because I guess Marxism is not um, like a podcast. It's like a uh, an interactive experience. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so asking questions is really as important as the introductions, especially in these sessions. Sure. So Omar um, was asked to talk about the Russian Revolution, and it's something that we've mentioned uh, probably quite a few times on this podcast, but we actually haven't had an episode yet where we've talked about kind of the the story of the Russian Revolution. So this session, the true story of the Russian Revolution, it's called that because there's so many distorted stories about the Russian Revolution that you might have heard, and it's extremely common for lies and misconceptions to be peddled as this is what happened in Russia and therefore this is why socialism won't work and revolutions will fail. So understanding what really happened, looking back at the historical evidence and talking about it, even though you know you might think something that happened in 1917 is not necessarily the first thing to learn about as a socialist, but when you hear about it, uh, when you draw out the lessons as Omar does here. I think you'll um, see why it is such a central historical event um, for socialists. So I will let Omar explain the true story of the Russian Revolution. All right. Um, Who here studied the Russian Revolution 
at school or at university or watched a movie about it uh, or anything um, outside the context of a revolutionary socialist organisation. All right, great. Um, forget everything you've ever know, learnt about that. <laughs> Start from scratch. Uh, wipe the slate clean. Um, the Russian Revolution is usually presented as a crime against humanity, um, a story of how an evil man called Lenin manipulated an entire population of over 100 million people to take power after years of trying, um, or best case scenario, a sort of moral fable about how people with good intentions and good, good, good hearts um, you know, tried to change the world and proved that really you should never, ever do that again. Um, that is the Russian Revolution uh, in a nutshell for most, most people. The truth is that it's the most inspiring and important event in human history. And, and I would confidently say that the first four years of the revolution, more progress was made on every social issue that matters to, I'm sure, everyone in this room uh, than probably has made in the history of humanity uh, since then. Um, the Russian Revolution was a shining example of um, human, the possibility of human liberation, of rights for women, rights for Jews, Muslims, other oppressed peoples in the Russian Empire. Uh, it granted self-determination to a whole bunch of countries that have been oppressed by this monarchy for hundreds of years. And it showed, most importantly, how workers' power and self-organisation could be the key to unlocking all these um, achievements. Now, this is not to say the Russian Revolution was a perfect event um, and that every single thing that happened is exactly what we would like to see happen again. Uh, but through the experience of the Russian Revolution and uniquely through the Russian Revolution, we see a glimpse of what kind of society uh, we could have. It's not the full picture, and it obviously was destroyed by Stalin in the end, but through the process you see a glimpse of what is possible. I think that's really, really important. Now, in this talk, I'm going to try and outline... Um, the kind of basics of the revolution. So a few of the key moments uh, that shaped the revolution, give you a bit of a flavour of what the revolution looked like, and then briefly um, conclude with, I guess, why it was destroyed by Stalin eventually. Um, now, the revolution, uh, and I'll focus on the revolution as a relevant event for people trying to change the world today uh, and trying to draw out some of the arguments um, that can help us do that. Um, with that all in mind, there's no way that I can convey the full complexity and richness of the event um, don't judge me on whether I reference every detail that you've heard about or every event that you know happened or every debate or whatever. I have two real goals in this talk. The first is to convince you that revolutionary social transformation is possible um, and, that, and necessary, and more than possible and necessary, actually the most beautiful thing you can possibly imagine of when that's happening. And the second is to inspire you to read more about the Russian Revolution. Um, and get some of the books that are on the bookstall out there because um, there is just so much to learn from these uh, incredible experiences. Okay, so really brief context. I uh, won't go too much into this. Why did the revolution happen? Uh, it's impossible to understand the revolution without understanding World War I. Um, and initially, uh, like in many wars, at the beginning of World War I, there was a kind of patriotic enthusiasm across uh, Europe and across the world. Um, and there was actually quite a lot of social struggle building up before the, revolu before the war, I should say, uh, that the war kind of crushed, this kind of patriotic fever kind of squashed. The radical socialists, who were concentrated mostly but not only in the Bolshevik party, were against the war from the very beginning. Now, this is important because most of the heroes of the early 20th century that we know about, that we study, that we are told are heroes, um, totally supported the war. The war killed 15 million people, um, and as a result... The famous pacifist Mahatma Gandhi was a passionate supporter of it, um, as was the anarchist Prince Kropotkin. So too was Winston Churchill and the Australian Labour Party leader at the time, Billy Hughes. So too were most of the leaders of the suffragette movement in Britain uh, who abandoned uh, the, the feminist cause to campaign for the war, barring some notable and really significant exceptions. 
And actually, most of the people in the world who were alive at the time, political leaders, supported this atrocity. Really, it was only the revolutionary and radical left who opposed the war, and that's something that is really important. Um, meanwhile, the moderate, you know, peace-loving defenders of order and stability cheered on the mass slaughter of 50 million people, which is something we should never forget. But so you have this radical upsurge. World War I kind of breaks that. Um, but, but because it's a world war, it's a full social mobilization in a country of Russia, which is very backwards, largely peasant-based, with a very weak economy in comparison to Britain, France, Germany, and the like. So the war really puts a massive strain on Russian society. Um, and the enthusiasm for the war you know, quite quickly fades as the human costs mount. What does the world war look like um, for people in Russia? Something that's relevant given the talk of Trump and so on these days. It looks like you know, millions dead. Um, everyone knew someone who had been killed by the war uh, in Russia. It looked like starvation on the front. People were being asked to fight a war with not enough food to feed themselves and their family. Most, like, most armies did not have enough bullets to fight the war properly. Many soldiers were fighting without shoes. Um, and this is in you know, Russia, the cold, um, slog, sleet, all that kind of crap. Um, at home in the cities, war veterans uh, were sleeping in the streets because homes were not being built. Resources were you know, not present for that kind of thing. Um, Poverty was everywhere. The consumption of the population of Russia collapsed by 50% uh, in the first uh, three years of the war. 50%. And this is a poor country, so you have this war, you have people dying everywhere, and the, the life living standards of the average population, per, the population is 50% lower. Of course, if you think about the fact that, as always in wars, some people were getting fabulously rich out of the war, for a lot of people that means uh, life expectancy and li- living standards was down substantially more than that. And topping it all off, this war is being conducted by a 500-year-old monarchy, which is widely despised, um, which relies on a pretty pathetic kind of religious veneer for its survival um, and offers no pretense at representation or compromise or, you know, democracy or anything like that. So these tensions build and build and build, and they explode in February of 1917 on a very important day, International Women's Day. Now, why did this most momentous revolution in history start on International Women's Day. Let me tell you, it was not an accident. Women workers were some of the most oppressed and downtrodden people uh, in Russia. Their partners were conscripted to the front and were often dying and had traditionally been the the main breadwinners. So these women were being forced into horrific kind of um, like kind of London Industrial Revolution style uh, work for the first time. They were paid less than their, their, previous, their partners were, um, average working hours of between 12 and 14 hours a day, um, making you know, uniforms for the war, ammunition, all this kind of stuff, while their children wore rags. And before and after work, they would have to wait for hours in lines just for like shitty bread, um, you know, which was watered down with like dust and all sorts of uh, rubbish because there wasn't enough flour in the country. And so uh, really women workers in Petrograd, which is the kind of heart of the Russian Revolution, uh, were you know, perfectly placed to kind of be the, the spark to light the revolution. And so International Women's Day, uh, which, which you know, radicals organized a strike on that day, it was the perfect excuse to take action against the war. And their action started off you know, small. I mean, we would call it quite large. It was about 50,000 people on the first day. Uh, by the next day, it doubled to 100,000, and then it exploded from there. And if you read accounts of the February Revolution, uh, it was, you know, almost like a festival. Um, Young people stopped (coughs) streetcars, sang revolutionary songs, threw ice and bolts at the police. 
After several thousand workers crossed the ice into the center of the city, fierce battles raged between the demonstrators and the police for control of Nevsky, which is the equivalent of George Street here or Swanson Street um, in Melbourne. Women grabbed the banners, the red banners, from men during the march, screaming, it's our holiday, we'll carry the banners. Which was really cool. Um, there were key moments uh, in this strike wave, uh, which went for five days. And the key moments was when the government sent in the, the police and the military, the Cossacks, they were called uh, then, um, to crush the, the revolution. And this had happened before in Russia in 1905, a similar uh, spontaneous, uh, exciting uh, movement uh, for um, change had been met with vicious repression by um, the government. And so the people at these protests were not naive. They were not, um, you know, just going on a peaceful march. They were determined to bring down the government and they knew what it meant to try and do such a thing. And so there's these scenes where you have armed soldiers on horseback um, lining up, pointing their guns at these crowds of uh, women. And uh, it's an extremely tense scene. Everyone in Russia who's part of the left knows what happens uh, in these moments. Uh, but this time, because of the building uh, frustrations with the war and because of the incredible bravery of the women, something different happened. Rather than be slaughtered, the women began politically arguing with the soldiers. Why are you doing this? You don't support this war. You're fighting and dying for nothing. Join us. We're all part of the people. Uh, and they did. And this moment of absolute bravery of these unarmed women workers, you know, tired after full days of work, um, struggling to survive in the most horrific conditions, they were able to break uh, the Tsarist army. And from then, um, the government was, you know, just, it fell. It totally collapsed. In five days, this monarchy that had lasted 500 years was brought down. What did this revolution achieve, um, this Soviet revolution? Well, unprecedented democratic rights and freedoms for the people of Russia. For the first time, it was legal now to protest, to, to speak, to publish media, newspapers, which was like, you know, the radical thing at the time, like social media today. Um, oppressed minorities were allowed to finally speak their own languages and learn their own languages. Uh, religions, you know, the teaching of religion was liberalized, where previously you had to learn the Orthodox Church of Russia. Uh, now people were allowed to learn whatever they wanted. All sorts of organizations, democratic civil society organizations, blossomed. Um, so you had trade unions, um, discussion clubs, reading groups, all sorts of things just explode across um, Petrograd and the capital. Now, it's worth going through all this because we're told that social change happens gradually, that you should write a letter to your MP, that you should, you know, um, wait for the day uh, where, you know, you can get a majority in parliament and then maybe then you can pass some legislation, maybe get some things happening. The truth is the opposite. We only get social change in our society when people fight for it and fight for it to the point where the ruling class are scared and try and buy us off with concessions. And that's what the February Revolution was about. It was about the massive workers and poor people in Petrograd scaring the shit out of the ruling class of Russia. And so they abdicated their position of power and, and granted a whole bunch of rights um, by default. So that's February. And it does a lot of amazing things, but it's only the beginning. The truth is that revolutions are processes. They're not single events. Um, and they don't actually solve the problems to begin with. They simply pose a whole bunch of opportunities. They give society options. Um, suddenly, where everything was closed and predetermined by authority, revolutions make it open-ended. Um, society now has a chance to choose which path they want to take going forward. And so the real battle is not really to start a revolution. There's been many throughout history, but how to finish it. And the Russian Revolution is an example of it finishing to, you know, relatively successfully. Um, so the February Revolution ended the old order. But then the question is, what comes next? 
And this question was posed in Russia in a very specific way. It was posed by the fact that the February Revolution created not one, but two governments uh, in the aftermath of the fall of the Tsar. The first government, uh, it was called the Provisional Government. I want to read out its full name because it's just funny. It's a historical quirk. The Provisional Committee of the Members of the State Duma for the Restoration of Order in the Capital and the Establishment of Relations with Public Organizations and Institutions. So it's a very grand name. What was this body? Um, it was essentially a self-appointed group of MPs who'd been elected in the prior um, fake, dem- the fake democratic kind of elections uh, that the Tsar had organised, which were massively rigged. Like the vote of one member of the nobility was worth like 32,000 votes of like workers. Um, you know, it was a total farce. These people were already in the state parliament of Petrograd and they declared themselves to be um, the kind of one government uh, that was going to manage the situation in Russia. Now, these figures were overwhelmingly members of the old elite, so much so that the president of this new government was a prince, you know, from the old aristocracy. At the same time, the workers and soldiers of Russia organized a different government, and it was called, um, you know, what's very famous now, Soviets, uh, which is basically just the Russian word for workers' council, or for council, actually. But, you know, it was primarily workers' council to to begin with. What were these councils? Basically, these councils were committees of people which were elected by mass meetings, so you imagine everyone who works at Sydney University or wherever you know, workplace you're from, they get together, they have a meeting, they discuss what they think about X, Y, and Z policy, and at the end of that meeting where they discuss all that stuff, they elect a committee which represents roughly the balance of opinion of that meeting. This happens in every workplace across the society, and then those, those committees, because obviously not everyone can meet, they elect representatives and so on. So you have this kind of structure that's built up from the bottom uh, upwards. These representatives received no perks of any kind for being representatives. They were paid exactly the same as what their workmates who they uh, were representing were paid. Um, They had no huge salaries, no helicopter rides, uh, no chauffeurs, no massive pension funds. Um, They just did it because they cared about the future of Russian society. Um, And they were recallable at any moment. So uh, if these representatives, they were meant to represent the views of the meeting, of the workplace. If the workplace changes views, they change representatives. And so in Russia, there was not one, but three elections to these Soviets um, between February and October of 1917 in most places. And though you compare that to our democracy, and it goes without saying um, that it's a it's much, much better system. Okay, each of these governments presaged a possible future for Russia. Um, you had one society, which was basically the same as the old order, uh, but with a Republican facelift. Um, that's a bit like when we got Malcolm Turnbull <coughs> after years of Tony Abbott. Um, people, or, you know, even Labour, really, if they get elected in next year. Um, this was not a substantial shift, and this was not something that people were prepared to accept and put up with, uh, as it turned out. But that was one option. The second option was something based on something entirely new, a radically democratic, horizontal structure of working class and ultimately peasant and soldier democracy. This was a grassroots, radical form of participatory democracy. But having said that, it was not at all clear at the beginning of the revolution that these were the two options. And the battle between these two options is really uh, the story of 1917. Because to begin with, it seemed like everybody was actually united. This distinction I've made between the two governments, that, that's clearer in retrospect than it was at the time. Um, everyone in Russian society basically came out after the February Revolution as a passionate Democrat. So you had progressive aristocrats and liberals joining uh, revolutionary workers in the streets, singing revolutionary songs, um, protesting, waving red flags, acting basically as if they'd started the whole thing themselves. Um, multimillionaires came out in support of the revolution. Many began calling themselves socialists and wearing red ribbons. Um, 
So much so that people began complaining that the rich, their ribbons were too big and they were cutting them in half and trying to distribute, because there wasn't enough red calico to go around in the middle of the war. Um, why, did, why were they doing this? It's because, well, one minister of the government, the provisional government, explained, the government, alas, has no real power. Troops, the railroad, the post and telegraph are all in the hands of the Soviet. The simple fact is that the provisional government only exists insofar as the Soviet permits it. So to come out clearly against the revolution and against radical democracy and workers' rights, to begin with, would have been impossible. But you can't square that these people have absolutely no interest in meeting the basic demands of the revolution, the whole reason the thing happened. Um, They cannot allow it. The working class and poor of Russia were not motivated by high phrases and abstract freedoms. They were motivated by the fact that the war was killing them and their loved ones, starving them out of existence, and for the peasants, uh, it was a simple fact that they were being squeezed to death by these parasitical landlords. And so how this contradictory kind of view of the revolution would play out, um, you know, would happen through the year. So it was in this um, really um, ambiguous and unstable situation, which, by the way, characterizes the beginnings of pretty much all revolutions. Marx Marx talked about it in 1848, and it's happened ever since. This kind of process of unity has to break down in order for real change to occur. This is the kind of situation which all the different political parties and social actors of Russia in 1917 intervened to try and resolve the crisis in their interest one way or another. And I don't have the time at all to go through all the different twists and turns of these fascinating months. A year is a very long time in politics. Just ask Peter Dutton about the last two (laughs) weeks. Um, He's hopefully going to be gone soon. It's an even longer time in a revolution where it's not just the elites who are pulling the strings, you know, putting out press releases, shadowing each other and so on, but it's millions of people across the country taking matters into their own hands, making decisions, getting involved, deciding how society should be organised. And so in this context, um, to summarise, the basic feature was that more and more people were getting frustrated and angry by the fact that the government was not providing for the needs of the people who'd made the revolution, that the basic goals of the revolution um, had not been met. And so you have a gradual radicalization in Russia through the year and a sense that radical change was necessary. I want to touch on two key moments in this process. The first occurred in April, so just a month and a half after the revolution, about a month after the revolution began. Um, And it's when the provisional government, the minister of war for the provisional government, sent a telegram to um, the allies of World War I. Because you've had this revolution, but World War I is still happening at a global level. And so this, the Allies had asked the Russian Revolutionary Government, what's your thoughts on this war? Like, we're hearing a lot of like, concerning things about peace and international brotherhood, and you know, we're really worried about this. Like, you're still committed to like, killing a whole lot of people, right? And so the government sent them a telegram saying, yes, we're absolutely committed to doing that. Um, we are committed to the war on exactly the same basis as the previous government. Uh, and the previous government's goals, for, for those who don't know, was for Russia to expand from its current, well, not its current, its current borders then, all the way through to Turkey, so Constantinople. They wanted an access to the Mediterranean, so they wanted to massively expand the Russian Empire. And the provisional government uh, committed itself uh, to that um, goal. The problem was that when you send a telegram, um, the, the bourgeoisie doesn't actually send the telegram. Um, real people... <laughs> Send the telegram, real working class people. And those working class people leaked the note uh, to the people who they saw as their representatives, the Bolshevik Party, who as staunch anti-war activists leaked it to the media, the newspaper at the time, uh, and it became a national scandal. The response was electric. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people flooded the streets of the capital city, uh, Moscow and Petrograd, the capital of the revolution, uh, and all the kind of minor cities as well. 
The pressure built up to the point where the, the Minister of War, Milikov, was forced to resign, also the Foreign Minister. Yep. Um, the reason this was so significant was twofold. One, there was a massive sense in which continuing this imperialist war was an offensive act in the context of a revolutionary government. It was beneath us as people who'd made a revolution in the name of freedom and democracy and you know, justice and all that to fight this bloody war. Um, so this is incredible moral and ethical statement uh, by the workers and poor uh, of Russia. The second thing was that they knew what this war meant. It was not just, a, you know, war is not war. War is dying, it's starvation, it's misery. Uh, and they knew that. And so the fact that the government was prepared to commit and recommit the working class and soldiers and peasants of Russia to that massively enraged people. And as a result of this, the kind of centre-left of the revolution, um, you know, most represented by the Menshevik Party, um, but also others, they were, they were, you know, had their credibility shaken quite substantially. The fact that they were supporting and propping up um, this provisional government uh, was a big problem uh, for the majority of people. And it was the first beginning of, you know, the first inkling that people had that something fundamentally more radical had to take place uh, for things to be resolved. Now, this feeling of betrayal and move to the left is not automatic. You think about, you know, it's not a revolution, but you think about like when left-wing governments get elected in, in the West today, uh, for example, Syriza in Greece, or if Labour gets elected next year, a lot of people will have hopes and illusions in them. When they sell out, it's not inevitable that society moves to the left. Sometimes it can lead to demoralization, frustration. But what made that not happen in Russia is that you had a sizable radical revolutionary organization which was able to be connected on the ground to the grassroots movements across this country and argue that there was an alternative to this betrayal. Uh, and from then on, um, the Bolsheviks won a majority in Petrograd of support among the workers, and they never lost that majority. Uh, and a majority actually expanded across the country from there. Okay, as the months went on, this you know, inkling that workers uh, had received from the note um, became you know, really quite a clear insight. It became very clear the government had no interest in ending the war or doing anything else about the social crises engulfing Russia. In June, they introduced the death penalty um, on the front, so anyone who tried to flee the war or conscientiously object from fighting uh, would be executed. Um, they had opposed the, the collectivization of land by the peasantry across the country. Basically, what peasants were doing was storming the kind of the mansions of the rich, burning them down, getting all the deeds to the land, burning them down, and saying, "Hey, this this land of this village is being collectivized. We're going to run it together." That was obvious. Well, it wasn't obvious, but that was rejected by the provisional government uh, as as kind of anarchy. Um, they'd also reintroduced conscription um, for any workers who rebelled. So if you're a radical unionist in the, in the city and you were being screwed by the boss, which was everyone, and you organise a strike or a protest, the provisional government would conscript you and send you to the front to die. Basically, they were consciously trying to destroy the cream of the working class of Petrograd and other major cities. So for all of these reasons and others, people were quite clear that this provisional government no longer represented them. And so supports for the Bolsheviks uh, and, uh, and the other left, the left SRs grew through the year. But it wasn't until the, an attempted coup, um, which was organized by a military general, um, really crystallized uh, people's understanding that actually there was no possibility of a parliamentary democracy in Russia that would resolve the demands of the people. It was really fascism or socialism. And this coup, to tell a really, a really brief story, was organized um, actually by the provisional government and it was organized to try and crush the Bolsheviks and the radical socialists in the major cities. It was a conspiracy to get a general in to occupy the cities and basically execute uh, the left. Final, well, sadly enough for, for the provisional government, um, the general who was organized to butcher everyone decided he would also butcher them. 
uh, and take power himself. So as well as killing all the Bolsheviks, he could kill the Mensheviks and the, the moderates and, and basically everyone and reinstall himself as a dictator and move back to a kind of monarchy situation. So um, a section of the provisional government sounded the alarm, um, mobilized the Bolshevik party, who then basically mobilized to defend uh, the city and to destroy the coup entirely before it began. All the kind of logistical aspects, once again, of a coup and an army um, suddenly became political. You have to, to get an army anywhere, you need to use a train. Well, who controls the train? It's train workers. Uh, to send messages, you need to use, again, the telegram service. What would happen is the messages that were sent from the general to his staff would be re- rerouted to the Bolsheviks, to the left, um, and then the false messages would be sent in return. So, oh, we're going to be there in 24 hours. Oh, we'll be there in 48 hours, you know. Um, and then the trains, they'd get on a train heading somewhere, they'd end up somewhere totally different. All the, all the train lines would be ripped up. And so basically, uh, the whole coup <coughs> collapsed. But in the aftermath of the coup, it wasn't just the coup that collapsed. It was any remaining illusions uh, in the provisional government and the parliamentary, kind of pseudo-parliamentary um, goals of the kind of moderate uh, social democratic kind of reformers. The coup proved to a majority of people that there was no interest uh, in parliamentary democracy and justice for the majority of the ruling class of Russia. And so much of the reformist left had been complicit in the betrayals of the last months and were identified actually with this coup, that in the wave of elections that were organised to the Soviets in September and October after this attempt, um, the Bolsheviks and their uh, left SR allies gained massive majorities uh, everywhere. And they campaigned very explicitly in these elections on the basis of destroying the provisional government and granting all power to the Soviets. And they did just that. So on the day of the National Congress of Soviets, October 25th, um, 1917, uh, they um, organized to very quickly, very easily um, undermine and destroy the remnants of power the provisional government had. So they just they replaced basically the soldiers uh, in the, telegra- the telecom kind of operating area, um, the main munitions stores and that kind of thing. They just disempowered the old ones, installed loyal left-wing people um, and the Congress was declared to be the first ever socialist government in history. And What were the results of this new revolution, this wonderful democratic event usually decried as a coup in most history books? The first and most important thing really was the fact that you have Soviet rule, i.e. the rule of committees of workers, soldiers and peasants, ordinary people, people like us, people who work all day, have no say over society. Those people governed. And I won't go through all the technicalities of how they governed, but Trotsky has written an amazing book called The History of the Russian Revolution, he has a phrase in this, where he starts this chapter. He describes the people in the conference as, you know, a, kind of a grey and dirty mass. And he doesn't mean that as an insult. He means that as an honest reflection. Because usually in parliaments, you get people wearing suits, you get golden scepters, you get, you know, plush green and red couches and gold, you know, everything. There was nothing of that in this government. This was a government of the people by the people. And it was made up of people, you know, disheveled, dirty, um, smoking, you know, it was just like mess. But it was, you know, Trotsky described it as a beautiful democratic mess uh, and something that I think is absolutely something to be celebrated. The first thing that these people did, um, these, these um, poor, you know, disheveled, tired uh, people was to declare an end uh, to Russia's involvement in World War I, where... Every single government in the world had been committed to fighting this war uh, till victory. The Russian people decided democratically to end their involvement immediately. This is really important because I don't think we're ever told how World War I ends. 
Um, there's really this idea that there's, you know, Archduke Ferdinand is killed. That's how it starts. Then there's a Treaty of Versailles, and that's how it ends. And how you get from A to B is never explained. Well, the truth is that the Russians ex- exited from the war, and then they organized peace with Germany, um, uh, which, and then the Germans were forced to end the war because there was going to be a mutiny inspired by the Russian Revolution. That's how World War I ended. That was the first act of um, the uh, Congress of Soviets. And in the weeks and months that followed, the Soviet government, which was a coalition between the Bolsheviks and the left SRs, um, decreed substantial pay rises for workers, um, began to take steps for workers' control over the factories, which was, you know, obviously the most radical uh, thing possible in the context. This was a first step towards a total distribution of not just wealth, which is something that social democrats agree with, but power. So no longer was it going to be possible for a handful of bosses to decide how the economy would operate. No, the point was that workers would decide how the economy would operate. The vast Russian empire was totally dismantled. There is pretty much, as far as I know, no history, no example in history of an empire dismantling itself willingly. But that's what the Russians did. Why? It cost them a lot. They gave up all their most fertile territories, all the places where they grew grain to feed the country. They gave that up. They gave up all the most lucrative mineral resources. They gave up so much stuff. Why? Because the people of Russia, the kind of poor, the oppressed, had a point of principle, which was to say that self-determination was a right and it was beneath a socialist government to oppress um, you know, all these different countries. A massive step. Rights for women and, and LGBT comrades were massively put forward. Um, abortion was made free and legal on demand, something that in Australia we still are a long way from. In 1921, gay marriage was um, decriminalised. Totally. Communal kitchens, childcare and laundries to remove the burden of housework from women were instituted experimentally. There was no money, but they tried and they allocated really, really um, significant amounts of money in a context where everybody was suffering uh, to trying these experiments. They actually set up um, clinics to explore what we would now call transgender therapy. They had um, the beginnings of experimentation with that in, in the early 1920s because, again, they were open to exploring um, different ways of being and, you know, breaking from the boundaries um, of um, capitalist gender norms. Liter- literacy exploded. In 1917 in Russia, just 37% of men above the age of seven could read and write, and only 12.5% of women could read and write. You know, the Bolsheviks hated this state of affairs. There's a really great Lenin quote. Without literacy, there can be no politics, he said, just rumors, gossip, and prejudice. And so one of the main campaigns of the government was to lift people up, give them the skills they needed to engage in society uh, on an equal basis with, um, you know, the kind of political chattering classes. And so they fought hard to abolish literacy um, and the manufactured ignorance of the mass of people, which the capitalists cultivate really consciously. Uh, They fought really hard to fight that. And by 1926, through a combination of efforts from above, because they had a lot of campaigns, but also from below, because there was an organic thirst for reading material and and education. Um, 66% of men and 37% of women could read and write. So that's in about about nine years, um, you know, 300% improvement of literacy rates um, in the context of decimation, civil war, poverty, misery, and so on. And it's also worth saying this education campaign was so committed to the principles of self-determination and and anti-oppression was that it was a crime, it was made a crime to prioritise the teaching of Russian in parts of the empire that were not Russian majorities. Um, so you had to prioritise the local language uh, in order to um, not encourage chauvinism. And so I could go on and on about the achievements of the October Revolution. It was truly the most 
incredible um, uh, moment uh, of history. But I need to turn to how it was defeated because that's obviously also very important. And I'll try and summarize that quite briefly. Because history doesn't recall the Russian Revolution for any of these incredible achievements in participatory democracy and human liberation. Um, it destroy, it, it's remembered for the Stalinist monstrosity that came afterwards. Um, and there's a lot of myths about that. The first thing is that the Bolsheviks wanted the one-party government. They never wanted the one-party government. They opened spaces for both the left of SRs and Martov and the, the most radical Mensheviks to be part of the government. Um, they, the Mensheviks, the Martov refused. Um, they walked out. And the left SRs, who were the coalition partners of the Bolsheviks, actually walked out of the government when when the Bolsheviks signed peace with Germany. So the question was, do we have peace with Germany or do we maintain this coalition? I think it was absolutely right to sign peace with Germany and end the war. So basically they were forced into a situation of a one-party government, not something they wanted. Was there a parliamentary alternative in Russia? I think the Kornilov coup really highlights the fact that there wasn't, um, but also the fact that there wasn't actually a parliamentary election in Russia until the, the, basically the government knew it was going to be destroyed by the, by the Soviets and replaced. And so they called uh, elections um, only in the last minute before the Soviet parliamentary system. The Soviet system was in, was, became um, superior. And so the parliamentary system was something of a fig leaf. The white armies that fought the civil war after the October Revolution never raised again, never again raised the slogan of parliamentary democracy. Their fight was for the reinstall, reinstallation of a monarchy and basically a fascistic monarchy um, in Russia. The final thing is that Lenin, you know, was a power-hungry dictator from way back, um, and you can find all that in a pamphlet he wrote in 1903 called What is to be Done. I would say it's a pretty poor strategy for a wannabe dictator um, to resign from a potential position as a lawyer in the bureaucracy of Russia, which is what his you know, father and his family were, to become, join an illegal underground organization in 1897 and spend 20 years uh, underground, in jails, overseas, in exile, starving, you know. This was not a very good strategy to be dictator. Um, the only reason, actually, that he did that, and that anyone would do that, it wasn't just him, it was the whole, you know, mass of people, was because they were passionately committed to changing the world. Um, and so, you know, this is all a bullshit argument. Why did Stalin actually come to power? And how did things actually go wrong? I think you've got to look at the objective conditions of Russia. The Russian Revolution had no time to enjoy its accomplishments. It had not a breath to take before it was on the defensive. It was invaded by 15 armies within six months of um, the revolution, the October Revolution. These were not armies out to, you know, peacefully uh, recapture the, the country. These were really fascistic armies. Um, there's a quote by a military general on the American side, who I won't, I won't read out, but he basically says... I can say very confidently that we killed 100 Reds to every one person that the Reds killed. And that's, you can, you can look that up. Um, the role of the Bolshevik Party in this context was crucial. The, the whole revolution is under siege. The question is, do you fight or do you give up? You had to fight. And the Bolshevik Party was made up of, it was not a party of intellectuals, it was a mass party, 400,000 people by the end of 1917. What kind of people? Working class people the absolute cream of the crop, the people who've been organising underground for years. To be a member of the Bolshevik Party, I'll, I'll detour, basically you only ever were active for about three months before going to jail and spending years in jail. That's the average, three months of activity before going to jail. Um, so to be a member of this party was not a privileged, you know, a high place to be in society. It was a heroic thing to do. And the people who joined in the middle of 1917 were also joining because they were committed to radical change. Um, 
the Bolshevik Party, when the, when the Civil War began in 1918, they were the ones who volunteered to fight first. They were the ones who put themselves on the front lines and who repelled the white armies, the kind of fascist counter-revolutionary armies, time after time. They were the ones who wanted to do it. Now, the obvious outcome of that is that they died in the greatest numbers. Now, what does it mean when the most radical, organized heart of the working class revolution uh, dies, when hundreds of thousands of those people die? Uh, what does it mean, for example, in Petrograd, when you have a population of 2.4 million in 1913 and just 600,000 people in 1921? Where do those people go? What happens to the working class that made the revolution? It's decimated. And its political heart and leadership is decimated. And so, you know, the idea of going to a political meeting in 1920, 21, 22, when you're starving, when the factories, everyone's unemployed, everything's collapsed, you know, it's ludicrous. You're always spending every second of your day looking for food. And so in that context, working class democracy becomes impossible. No one's interested in these meetings anymore. Um, you can read minutes of the meetings that it's great histories that have been written subsequently. The attendance at meetings just drops off totally. It basically just becomes the, the remnants of the Bolshevik party that still exist are basically the only ones turning up to these meetings. And so you have the collapse of the economy because of years of civil war. You have the collapse of um, politics and the democratic structures of the Soviet because of the same thing. And you have the, the collapse, really, of the best of the Bolshevik party uh, in many ways. Lenin's death in 1924 is kind of like the moment which crystallizes all that. Um, in general, I don't think individuals are the decisive element of kind of history, but uh, it's quite a kind of symbolic and actually you know, appropriate thing that he died in 1924. And the reason his death is important is not because he could have saved everything, but it's because his death allowed Stalin and his um, allies to reorganize the whole of the Russian state in their own interest uh, and basically begin cracking down on any kind of democratic expression. And Trotsky tried really hard to combat this degeneration, but in the context of just devastation of the working class movement, it was, it was never really going to happen. Was there an alternative to this degeneration? I think there absolutely was. Um, we've got a meeting about it in a couple of weeks' time about the German Revolution. But basically, the Russian Revolution was never seen as an isolated event. It was seen as a catalyzer of social struggle across Europe. Um, and the Bolshevik Party and the revolutionaries all around the world saw the Russian movement as the beginning of an international revolution because they s knew very well that you can't have socialism in one country. There is no country with the resources, the capacities, the working class, all the technological skills and, and equipment to have socialism in one country. Um, and there were these revolutions. It was not a mistaken gamble. There were revolutions in Germany, in Italy, in Spain, in China, in uh, hung Hungary. It goes on. Basically, every country of Europe saw um, some kind of uprising in the immediate aftermath of the Russian Revolution. Unfortunately, in those countries, uh, they were not a party like the Bolshevik Party prepared to lead those to success. And so the revolution was isolated and the internal degeneration uh, unfolded. So to end, I guess, on a positive note, um, what is there to learn from this amazing experience? I think there's a lot to learn. Um, understanding how millions of people, ordinary people who can one day be doing nothing, be oppressed, be passive, can transform and become revolutionary actors and change world history. Um, that is something worth studying because we're taught the opposite. We're taught that only heroes, only politicians, only you know, intellectuals can do it. Uh, the truth is the opposite. Massive lesson to learn. Another lesson to learn is that revolutions are extremely effective at achieving social change. Um, this monarchy that had existed in Russia for 500 years was just 
abysmal, and it survived forever on the basis of a very pathetic, um, moderate liberal opposition who had made noises about challenging it, but were never prepared to actually take action. It was the radical activity of workers and poor people in 1917, which was able to democratize that country from being the most backwards um, country in Europe to being the most advanced, being the most democratic, being the most equal uh, the history has ever seen. And like I said at the very beginning, revolutions are not just effective, but they're wonderful, wonderful events. Um, Lenin called revolutions festivals of the oppressed. And honestly, like the more you read about the Russian Revolution and really any uh, mass social movement, the more you understand what he actually means by that. Um, anyone who's been to a mass demonstration, um, whether it be the Yes campaign last year or some of the union ones, you get a glimpse of that, right? When you're there with 50 to 100,000 people or more, you kind of feel what power you have like that kind of unity of purpose and the possibilities. Well, the Russian Revolution was like that, but on a qualitatively mass, bigger and more dramatic scale. And so reading about that and studying that um, is absolutely um, inspiring and gives us a vision for what society can be like in the future. <coughs> but also learning about the Russian Revolution gives you uh, an urgency because um, the, the success that was possible in Russia and then the failure of the revolution to spread internationally was all predicated on the existence of a mass uh, revolutionary Marxist organization which was able to navigate the twists and turns, uh, advance, retreat, work out when to press, when to pull back, um, and ultimately was able to lead the only successful workers' revolution in history to that point. And that's something that, obviously, we would love to see happen again. So for all these reasons, I think it's really worth learning about. So that was Omar Hassan, the true story of the Russian Revolution. I hope it did inspire you, as he says at the end, to go away and read more um, on that period of history. And Red Flag Books, so we have Red Flag, the newspaper, which hopefully you've subscribed to. We have Red Flag Radio, the podcast, and we also have Red Flag Books, the bookshop, and just uh, recently also publishing some classic texts of Marxism. Mm. Uh, so if you haven't looked at Red Flag Books, you should do that. If you haven't booked your ticket for Marxism 2021, you should do that on the website. You'll be able to find the links in the notes for this episode, wherever you listen. And please do share, uh, copy and paste, and send this episode to people who you think might enjoy it too. Uh, and thanks for your time listening to us with us today. Hmm. This is Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>